but the parents aren't going to be sitting there taking you through every moment of your educational yep. or health-related experience, but the AI can. Yes, and, and I think that's exactly the argument that we make. We're not trying to replace humans because I don't think we can, but the humans can't be there for the kids 24-7, whereas the AI can. And yeah. so it's a really nice supplement. It's a strong um, argument. It um it paves the way for for a metaverse that is supportive and beneficial in multiple meaningful contexts of life, but get ready for that moral panic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
I'd be a, a multimillionaire mogul, or I would be a salesperson selling AdWords. <laughs> Who knows if I had taken a different path. Uh, not that selling AdWords is a bad thing, but it's just uncertain and you know, no regrets. But I do somewhat regret at least the loss of the opportunity to have been there with Grace throughout my early career in academia she is such a thoughtful, super bright, super creative individual researcher. I've always looked up to her. And, um, and so I hope that you get a sense of, of that impressive nature and that deep understanding of the phenomenon that we'll discuss today, the metaverse, Memories of Alhambra, which is a sci-fi show that Grace recommended to me in preparation for this podcast. It, has, it was produced in Korea, but takes place largely in Spain and Granada, a little bit in Barcelona, and it focuses on an AR game, augmented reality, with many themes that relate to Grace's research and mine, and we discuss those themes and some of her research findings, and I hope you find the conversation as enjoyable as I did. Welcome, Grace Ahn, Dr. Ahn, my longtime friend and colleague. You are an associate professor at University of Georgia, and you're the director of the Gavel Lab. Boom. Yes. <laughs> the Games and Virtual Environments Lab. Nice. Is there an actual gavel in your lab? There is not. We thought about it. We, you know, we went back and forth on the icon for my lab, uh, but the gavel just didn't fit with virtual environments, <laughs> so it didn't make the cut. A virtual gavel, maybe. <laughs> are you in Athens right now? No, I actually moved out closer to Atlanta. There are um, more companies here. You know, there uh, are pretty big gaming companies in the center of Atlanta. I work with Georgia Tech a lot, with Emory a lot. And so, you know, it made a lot of sense for me to live closer out here uh, rather than in Athens. So I go back and forth. Okay. And, um, and your studio is amazing. As we were just discussing, you. you've got the bomb camera set up. Uh, <laughs> you look like you're being interviewed. For yeah. someone may, way more important than me, <laughs> uh, but thank you so much for being on the on the Sparty Cast. Yeah, yeah, it's good to be here. Who knows? You know, uh, ten years uh, down the road, we may be looking back to this point <laughs> and say, "Yes, this is what Robbie did before he got really famous." <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, and, and we were also just talking about um, whether fame is really a great goal for us academics. It might actually reduce our credibility. So we mm -hmm. need to be careful. Um, and yeah, but tell me, what have you been doing in your lab? Of course, we're going to talk about memories of Alhambra today. Super mm -hmm. excited. Thank you for that recommendation. I enjoyed it. Um, but before we get to that, let's, let's do the Grace show. Yeah, um, I guess we've been slowly making the transition from sort of the solo user-based studies that we have focused on for the past decade or so. Um, is, isn't that astound astounding? I think we've both been at this for over a decade now, right? Over That's a decade. Blo that blows my mind. So my lab has opened or has been operational for about 11 years now. But it's changed quite a bit. At least it has changed quite space, a bit, right? right? It has changed quite a bit. Um, at the beginning, when I was initially setting up the lab, uh, the headsets were pretty antique <laughs> and uh, the body tracking systems were also very expensive, but didn't really do a good job 
of what they're supposed to do. Um, and it was just such a hassle to set up. So once we set something up, we couldn't move, right? We, the mobility was just so low in all of these uh, systems. Um, and now it's just uh, setting something up for a demo, for instance, or having to move things around a little bit for different types of projects is uh, it's a breeze. Um, so it's gotten a lot uh, more versatile, I guess, and uh, more mobile. Tell me about the space. I remember you were you were building up a collaborative VR space. I don't remember if that was your lab proper or not. I, I haven't visited yet. I'd still love to, but uh, go on. Come. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, initially we had been split up into two different um, small rooms and each of the rooms had a purpose. So one was um, to uh, mainly develop our own proprietary VR systems and so, or VR scenarios. And so we developed a lot of our own VR worlds in that development uh, room. And then the other one was meant for um, the actual experimentation. So it was a room scale. We could bring in um, a participant in there. It had a separate survey room. Um, and so it was nice, but we could only run one participant in a single time slot, which if you think about how the cell sizes have exploded since we were graduate students <laughs> back in those good old days. <laughs> um, and nowadays we are aiming for at least 50 uh, participants per cell. And so that is a lot of participants that we need to run through. And like this one per person system just did not, it, it, it wasn't feasible. Like by the time we ran 200, I mean, the semester would be done. Um, so just to interpret uh, for those of you who aren't experimentalists, when Grace says cell, she means the number of participants in a condition, in an yes. experiment. So in if we have condition. two variables, uh, let's say avatar um, being male or female, and then what's another variable? Pick a variable, any variable. Uh, avatar uh, appearance, whether you are having a realistic avatar or let's say a cartoonish avatar. Sure. Instance. So we have cartoonish and realistic male and female. That's four cells because it's a two by two. And now, yeah, 50 per cell. That's that's quite a standard. I mean, um, we could we could probably we used to get away, though, when we were grad students with 15. Right. I don't think I've ever done 15. I think I've done like 25 to maybe 30 ish. And, you know, it's with a within subjects, you could probably get away with with fewer. Right. Maybe, but maybe, yeah. yeah. Typically we did uh, between subjects. And so it was still like, you know, between like 25, 30 ish. And then now we're aiming closer to 50. And so a two by two would be 200 at minimum. Um, it's way it's, too long. So now do you have a bigger space? You can run multiple people? We do. So now we've expanded uh, into a space where we have about 10 room scale VR systems. So we're technically pre-COVID. Uh, we're able to run through about 10 participants at once. Wow. You have a, an army of research assistants to kind of uh, juggle them through that pipeline. Yes, I imagine so, um, that's why we're able to run through multiple projects at once. Otherwise, we would never be able to do this. That's amazing. And can you tell me about some of the interesting research questions that have yeah, been yeah, on your mind yeah. recently? Uh, it was on the way of explaining the lost track. Um, oh no! But, yeah, in the in the past ten years, we've really focused on like the solo VR experiences and how users um, really interact with a virtual experience, and then. Uh, those effects transfer into the physical world to change their uh, attitudes and behaviors. And nowadays, I think we're slowly pivoting to a more social VR space. Uh, the word metaverse is evidently the big next new big shiny thing. 
Um, and our social VR experiments are up and running. We're doing a lot of observation studies. Um, we're also doing some surveys and experiments uh, that use multiple users at once. I, I don't know, should we talk about the metaverse or should we talk about the studies? Because I've, I've, I'm actually writing a, an op-ed type piece right now on defining metaverse. Um, let's do that. It's a buzzword. <laughs> it's a buzzword. It's been around. It, so is it Stevenson who came up with it? Snow Crash? Yeah. 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 Because um, I visited South Korea over the summer um, and I hadn't been back home for about two years. And, uh, you know, like I packed clothes that I usually wear at home, which are like sweatshirt and leggings and shorts, right? <laughs> I had no intention of doing anything formal. Uh, and then I get there and the word metaverse is everywhere. Like every uh, news uh, article, every book, every person, they're all talking about the metaverse. And so I had to do uh, several interviews and, you know, like go shop for clothes because I was like, <laughs> what do I want? <laughs> yeah, yeah, because you can't just digitally change your avatar uh, yet. Uh, so, but if we're in Memories of Alhambra's world next, you could, in theory, change your clothes, even though you're wearing leggings. You could. And I think that was one theme that was really interesting with that, that uh, show. And for those of you who have not watched The Memories of Alhambra, it's a uh, popular original Netflix show. Um, that stars star several, you know, uh, really popular Korean actors and actresses. Oh, are they all? Are they all famous? I, I mean, very, I very famous. famous. Yeah, oh, top, cool. yeah, top of the line. And the show basically deals with uh, this interesting premise of uh, the main characters, the, the protagonist, engaging in a augmented reality video game, and that video game starts sort of. I guess, interlaying itself with the real world and slowly becomes a part of his reality. But what's really interesting about his reality and everybody else's reality is that the show introduces this concept of what happens when everybody's version of reality is different. Because you see him like battling uh, digital characters in this video game and everybody is just staring at it, right? It's kind of like how you see the stock photos of someone in VR and they're super engaged with their mouth half hanging open and nobody knows what's going on, right? And so I think we're slowly pivoting from this mainstream culture where everybody shares uh, this reality. Uh, right, right. <laughs> so I just brought up a screen for listeners only. It's a bunch of people. Um, I'm just gonna show three seconds so we don't get in trouble for copyright. Of people running around and fighting <laughs> but of course uh the view is from a fake newscast so they're saying look at all these crazies running around they, <laughs> they look like they're dancing but they're actually playing an ar game right so but, but i think they share a reality but i thought maybe you were going to well, say some of them some of them do some of them share their own reality but um when so i think the show really couldn't make up its mind because in certain scenes, you see different players and they're at different levels too, right? Not everybody is at the same level. And so they're fighting different characters. Um, and some of them are able to engage in multiplayer games. So someone comes in and they're able to meet in, the, in that same video game world. And so 
um, it does introduce this idea of what happens when all of y'all's reality, like my reality and Robbie's reality, what, what happens when it's completely different? Yeah. And then, and then you ask the question, well, in fact, aren't all of our realities extremely different as it is, right? It Politically, is. Um, it is. It is. or at least... From politically, family economically, family. Uh, you know, even the global pandemic, this experience is very different for every individual. Um, for instance, do you have access to resources? Uh, you know, uh, do you have kids? Um, uh, do you have uh, different individual health issues that you need to worry about? So all of all of this does create a very different reality for everybody. But so now this I is a bit of a philosophical tangent, but um, to bring it back to the technology, do you think AR or other experiences of the metaverse will highlight the differences in our realities that have already existed, um, but just because we're we're human and uh, members of a hu huge species. Mm -hmm. um, does it make explicit these subjective differences? You know, I think that's a really interesting, interesting question, because initially, I think people um, are going to enter this world where there are no cues of social status, for example, or there are no cues that they initially or they originally um, and traditionally rely on uh, to make judgments of other people. Um, and so biases, biases or yeah. prejudices. Um, and I think initially it might seem like it's a it's a equal standing. Everybody starts on an equal footing, but once people figure out how the metaverse functions, I think people will figure out ways to bring in the biases. <laughs> and there's this um, you know there's this problem of people perceiving technology to be neutral or to be uh, non-biased, but we all know that that's not true. Uh, you know, there's this facade of, uh, if, I guess, equal standing and um, equality, but I don't think that's necessarily true once people figure out how to bring in the bias and they will do that. Um, and so Absolutely, which, is, which has been a focus for my research in gaming, toxicity and gender differences, also in race, and, and you're well aware of all of that. Um, okay, so... Can we get, can we just get your definition of the metaverse? Where does it stop? Where does it start? Why is Reddit not the metaverse um, or is it? I guess it's really hard to define right now, which is why it's just, it's a big buzzword. And even when I was in Korea, I was asking people, what do you, what do you think the metaverse is? And I think people immediately think of uh, virtual reality uh, or, you know, I hear the movie Ready Player One a lot. And I think interesting. They're defining it by hardware when in fact it's really, to me, seems to be a software phenomenon. Right. And I think a lot of people are defining it by the way that popular media has portrayed this, which is uh, interesting, right? And so, sure, the, the popular media does present some sort of one picture of what metaverses can look like. Um, but Typically, I think the message from popular media has always been that, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a level of moral panic attached to new technology. And it's always sort of like, and that's, a, that's also the theme with uh, the memories of Alhambra, right? It's, uh, there's always the scary message that 
you know, new technology is coming. It'll take over your life <laughs> and eventually become your reality. And that's the only reality, reality that you can live in. And so I think there's, there's a bit of that. And when people start defining metaverse based on what they saw in popular media, I think there's the danger of people always being concerned that this is a bad, inherently evil thing. But it's actually maybe just a, a replica of uh, the, the reality that we're currently living in. Um, I think the metaverse might be sort of this ideal space where people want to build a virtual version of life. Um, although they're not really sure what that looks like yet. And so at the moment, I think it's closer to a buzzword, maybe a idea, um, uh, this ideal place where we're able to virtually connect with each other. The platform itself, like you said, uh, is just hardware, right? And I think eventually we'll figure out, well, what is it that, you know, uh, it can be social media might be a part of that metaverse. Um, Social VR might be a part of that metaverse too. And I don't think people have necessarily um, come to terms with what, what is it that exactly we're going to call uh, a metaverse. But I think just popularly speaking, people immediately think of extended realities, virtual augmented uh, mixed realities. In what way is it different from simply adding visual embodied metaphors and interactive elements to the internet that we know and love for these past few decades ish yeah i think it introduces a lot of things that we're not able to do and um you know other scholars have uh touched upon this in their research uh obviously you're able to you know visit places that you wouldn't be able to visit or go through experiences that you're not able to experience in the physical world within these virtual environments um but perhaps what we are uh facing right now is uh the understanding that there's something a little bit more than zoom like this right <laughs> i'm not able to reach in um, to this screen and interact with you uh, and there's something to be said about us being in the same space together. So sharing a, a virtual space together, uh, even as avatars. And that brings forth a lot of actions that we're able to do that we can't do in, in Zoom. And so um, I think it's a new way of being able to overcome physical distances. It's a new tool that would allow us to do that. Um, with more action possibilities than let's say just being on Zoom. Yeah, so it's psychologically, it's, it's, a, it's a psychological shift and it, an increase in terms that we're very familiar with, presence, social presence, self-presence. Right, I mean, there's there's that psychological aspect, but it's also behavioral, right? I'm, I'm able to do some actions that I wouldn't just not be able to do over Zoom. I can give you things, right? I can hand a object over, um, we can shake hands, we can hug each other, we can play tag. I mean, these are a lot of these actual behavioral things that I would be able to share with you. And I think um, that introduces uh, a lot of different ways of interaction. So we're not just sharing information, right? Sitting down and talking to each other, but we're sharing an experience. And that experience doesn't necessarily need to be verbal. It can be nonverbal too. Yeah, yeah. You know, on the one hand, I see it as a distinct new thing and certainly um, worthy of study. On the other hand, I see it as a further degree of 
the progress that we've seen with increasingly interactive, richer mm -hmm. uh, media. And not to imply that richer media is always better, as we know from theories in our field, sometimes limited cues are better, um, meaning it might be better for us to be on Zoom uh, so we have a little bit of distance or maybe on a phone call so we can multitask or in a telegram room or whatever they're called on telegram. Why have I lost it? We don't use them anymore. Um, but the chat rooms like the verbal ones. Oh my gosh, I'm forgetting it. The verbal chat, like Clubhouse? Clubhouse, that's it. Yeah. That's it, right? <laughs> like there's there's some people see a benefit in reducing the amount that you have to um yeah, or, or some people might say that they prefer phone calls over Zoom meetings. Yeah, yeah, because you can present uh, yourself. Yeah, we just, we just presented a, a piece on this uh, in our recent conference, but I think a lot of technology media fix uh, researchers and studies sort of brush aside the fact that users actually have a lot of agency in which platforms they decide to use, right? So it's not necessarily that they're going to be using um, the best, fastest, and uh, the richest platform, it may be that, you know, st strategically speaking, I want to just write an email rather than put you on the phone uh, for whatever different purposes. Like Absolutely. This, the context that I'm in right now, uh, email might be a lot better sure. than us talking over the phone. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, uh, it's clearer for um, what's non-equivocal tasks. I think it's better. Mm -hmm. That was the term in that one study. Um, but if I send you an emoticon, like a hug emoticon, well, that's better than maybe writing you a letter. But if we can hug in VR, right, we feel closer. So that's that's the benefit of the metaverse. And I guess, yeah, I and guess that's the danger what's, too. What's really interesting about um, one of the field studies that we ran within a social VR space was uh, you know, it was, it was a conference talk in social VR and the avatars were literally just in a room watching a big screen together. And I thought to myself, how boring, like there's no inter interaction happening. Like, people are not doing anything. They're just sitting there as avatars watching the same screen. And the participants told us that it felt like they were watching something together. Ooh. And so like, there was a difference. Was yeah, so it like I didn't I didn't think that there would be, but even when they were just avatars staring at the same screen, it's kind of like um, you know going to the movie theater, right? So people wanted to be together in the same space and share um, even just a, a streaming talk together, which was yeah. interesting. Watch parties. Yeah, watch parties for sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um. So to step a little bit away from playing with the idea of the metaverse but not too far away i imagine um thinking about memories of alhambra and studies you've run are there mm -hmm. some connections and and you and i uh we brainstormed a list of themes i'm just going to seed them right now into your head so there's losing the ability to distinguish reality from augmented reality um the health consequences of gaming getting killed in the game means getting killed in real life or you know, falling over in the game. Sometimes you fall over in real life, and that's that's a real danger. Um, the feasibility and practicality of full body tracking in video games. How research in non-game domains is uh, for XR is relevant and important. The interaction between reality and virtuality, or seeing life as a game or a game as life, and how virtual experiences carry carry over into the physical or real or whatever world you want to call it. Um, we've already mentioned a bit multiplayer or social VR, moral mm -hmm. panic you mentioned as well, and then also relationship building between human users 
and virtual agents. All great themes um, related to the show and things you've researched. Yes. Um, so I guess uh, watching the first few episodes, um, you know, it reminded me of the fact that virtual reality or uh, XR, uh, AR, really hasn't taken off in the video game world. And um, I think a part of that might be, and this is just me speculating, no studies done, this is not evidence-based, um, is that people don't really want to be that active playing video games. Like it's a hassle, you know, how the character runs back and forth a billion times. I'm like that, mm -mm, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I'm with you uh, on that intuition. Yeah, because like you just want to chill out at the end of the day, you come home and you're on your sofa and, you know, uh, hitting a few buttons. Like I don't want to actually physically have to fight someone off and, you know, get killed a thousand times like that just is too emotionally and physically draining. And so a part of me thinks that uh, VR slash XR games will just never take off because the first time, first couple of times you play it is it's cool. But among video gamers, like who actually wants to do that every time? But isn't that a design issue? Like, can't you address that by creating games that are fully immersive, but you don't actually have to run? I know, but that would even. still involve you uh, vegging out on your couch and now hitting uh, air keyboards, right? Sensor, finger sensor keyboards or buttons or joysticks if you're not moving at all, right? Mm -hmm. um, the best you could do is teleport, but you would still have to swing at things. And people just generally don't want that much effort. And you also have to think about that tactile satisfaction of pounding on something like keyboards or buttons or something, right? Yeah, the haptic feedback. Yes, haptic feedback. And so technically, yes, you could uh, build in like a virtual keyboard and virtual joystick, but it just wouldn't be as satisfying, I think. Yeah, okay. So, so you're not convinced um, and, and you don't think it's just the price point still being too high and the inability to engage socially. I mean, you were just saying social co-watching is powerful. So social co-watching is powerful, but I think once uh, any sort of video game that is not fitness-based, so if it's a fitness game, then sure. But if it's a entertainment-based purely, you know, like a MMORPG type of a gameplay, I just think that VR requires too much effort and I know that VR games are, um, you know, where all of this concept of virtual reality became popularized. But again, I think it's just, yeah, that's that's a cool concept. But do I really want to put in that much effort into entertainment? And the same thing goes for, you know, people ask, well, what if we had this much interactivity engagement with uh, TV shows? What if you became a part of the character and had to like run away from monsters? And I'm like, yeah, that's great that's cool in concept but like is that what you want to do in a movie theater when you just want to be entertained and <laughs> maybe i don't want to get off my sofa um so i don't think that's where vr is going to take off i actually think that it's going to be in the non-game domains where virtual and augmented reality is going to um, have added value so so back to memories of alhambra alhambra mm -hmm. i don't know if if there's a Korean way to say it. I always said Alhambra when I lived in LA, but <laughs> Alhambra, Alhambra. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, which which of those themes that we just played with do you think can you can you relate a specific study you've done in the lab that for which um, you remember a finding? Yeah, and uh, you know, there's uh, there's another theme that's within uh, the memories of Alhambra. Uh, once you get to the latter stages, so there's a there's a love relationship between the protagonist um, who finds himself in this video game uh, that has eventually become his reality, and then um, the the female character uh, is also featured as a character, a NPC character um, within that game. Because her and brother so, designed the game. So yes, she, because her, her, her younger brother designed the game. And so she is like a key figure, a central figure in the, in the game itself as well. And she literally has a, a, a key. She, she does. She has the spoilers. key breaking. Yes, spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> she does have the key to the game. Um, and so there's this interesting area that they touch upon in which um, they ask the question of whether you're able to have a relationship with these virtual agents that are NPCs. And the, you know, the, the protagonist um, really risks and goes, goes through a lot of uh, really terrible events uh, to be able to meet this uh, virtual character, even within the game. Um, and it's an interesting question that we have started to ask in our own research, where sure, we're pretty sure that, you know, at this moment, you're not able to build a virtual agent that's 100% like a person, but maybe that's not the point here. Um, you know, people have had relationships with far less. So it could be that in the future, we're talking about psychological associations and relationships with virtual agents. And so, you know, that brings us to ask the question of like, what is it that um, you expect from these relationships? Uh, when you think of a friend, why is that person a friend? Is it because you get financial benefits? Is it because, you know, it's emotional? Is it because the friend is helpful in a certain way? Um, and so we started testing this theory out in terms of uh, kids and virtual agents, um, because children actually have a much different uh, perception of what a relationship is because they, you know, their experiences are limited. Um, their cognitive abilities are also limited too. And so for them, a lot of, a lot of the kids will say that if a friend gives something to you. So if a person gives something to them, they are a friend. It's very similar. It's very transactional. They haven't really, um, you know, perfected the idea of what friends That's are. That's so shallow. My kids are super shallow. I'm with you. My kid, my kid is very shallow. <laughs> even, even with uh, parents, it's like, well, if you do something good for me, then you're a good mom. <laughs> If you take something away, you're a bad mom. <laughs> it's a lot simpler. And, uh, you know, for kids, I think the idea of having a virtual agent that helps them in a variety of different ways is a lot more feasible than, let's say, uh, creating something for adults, for example. 
Um, and so we have this uh, wide scale um, NIH funded study where we created a virtual pet, a virtual dog that helps kids um, set and meet physical activity goals and it offers encouragement and plays games with them. Uh, you know, it will give uh, gifts to the kids if they meet the physical activity goals. And so how recent is this? Because I know you've done a lot of virtual pet research. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's been in the past three or four years. So we've collected data uh, over, you know, at least uh, the past three years or so. We're we're currently collecting. So this past data. three years, you must have done ten studies on this. Uh, uh, well, idea. it's it's a big longitudinal study, and oh, so yeah. our data collection is uh, it spans over a year, and so we have two cohorts, and we just started our three a third. Well, I remember um, citing your like 2014 papers on virtual pets, even right, right, years. right. Yeah. So those were the pilot studies. Okay. Um, and uh, in one of the pilot studies, we find that kids do perceive uh, a, a psychological relationship with a virtual pet. So it's not just um, you know, I'm playing games with this, this pet, but there is a relatedness where they feel intimacy with this virtual pet. And we're wondering whether um, this might be the key to having more longitudinal impact over time. Uh, because once you build a relationship, that stuff goes on for a longer period of time than, let's say, points or badge systems and you know leaderboards. And so um, it might be one way for us to tap into a longer term effect rather than just a short lived. Uh, here's a few points um, and then kids quit doing whatever they're doing. And it goes beyond a parasocial relationship that kids might form with a media character or even a fictional character. Right, like I. Because there's I true interaction. You're, yeah. you're, you know, you're playing games. You're interacting. You are petting the dog. Uh, the dog gives something back to you. Um, there's, you know, some uh, communication that's going on, both verbal and nonverbal, and so there is a, a budding relationship there. I need a virtual me to help take care of my kids, so I me can do more work. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I need a virtual sibling for my kid. <laughs> and maybe they I'll won't even be able some to tell. Of yours. <laughs> they won't be able to tell the difference. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, my kids have enough real siblings, um, yeah. but they don't need. <laughs> they they do need some some virtual guidance. Um, and I I like this idea. Um, I think in some ways it harkens back to your your advisor, former advisor Jeremy Valenson was closely connected with Cliff Nass, who was my mentor. And Jeremy is, of course, a mentor of mine, too. Um, and Cliff Nass and Byron Reese came up with the media equation. So that our, for our listeners, the media equation is the idea. And we were running short on time. So very quickly, um, the idea that people interact with agents, social agents, computers, as if they're real people. The, social, the psychological rules that we use normally apply. Uh, not just to humans, but also to computers. Do you see this? Do you see people don't propose marriage to Siri, or at least most don't. Um, but through these interactions, they develop understandings of mutual support or whatever it is, like you're saying with the pets. Um, do you see additional theoretical complexity in our understanding of the media equation through this new research? Yeah, so... I think uh, with these virtual agents, they're not, you know, it's not that people think of them as humans, um, but maybe relationships and psychological relationships uh, 
maybe that doesn't necessarily always need to be with humans. And I think um, the the CASA framework, uh, and uh, I think Jesse Fox and um, Andrew Gambino has, uh, they have a conceptual piece. I think it's not data supported, but um, they have a review piece that tries to update the, the framework of media equation. I'm an author on that one too. Oh, oh, and you too. Okay. So you I'm know like a trailing author and CASA yeah. framework is pretty much the media equation. Yeah. Um, so computers you, 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 as you, social you. actors, computers are social actors. Yeah. Yeah. It's purely theory-based. So that's why I'm really interested in the empirical kind of side of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, look at me citing your work on your podcast. <laughs> I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, the, the argument goes something like um, we've gotten used to interacting with media, so we're not really always polite to it. We don't always follow the rules um, because we've developed new social scripts or scripts right. for interactions. We don't use the person-to-person -person social script the same way we do with the media. But I think right. if you're saying that these kids are getting close with their virtual pets, then in some right, ways we are following think, that social script. Right, we, we are following that social script. And I think the original CASA uh, made the argument that you know, they're, they're, treating pe or they're treating computers as if they're human beings, but I don't think that's necessarily the case. Like the kids know very well that this is a computer agent. They're just having a relationship with a computer agent. And I think that's fine. So it's kind of like the way that we have different relationship statuses, right? We have intimate close friends, we have acquaintances, we have parents and like all of these relationships, we interact in a completely different way and that's fine, right? Uh, we don't necessarily say just because I treat you like an acquaintance, that's a bad thing uh, versus, you know, like they don't expect it that way. So there are different expectations that are built um, and as you say, different mental models uh, that people build to treat different relationships in different ways. And I think the kids know full well that this is not a real dog. Uh, this is not a human. It's a computer agent. It does several things well, um, and it, it does support a lot of their activities. And so they're fine building this sort of a limited relationship with this computer agent, and it does help them uh, adhere to this physical activity program. And so I think we have to maybe approach this in a more nuanced fashion, um, saying, you know, here are some of the expectations. And as, as, as long as the computer agent is able to fulfill those expectations, this sort of a relationship is very different from, let's say, the relationship that the kids have with their parents. And they understand that. But the parents aren't going to be sitting there taking you through every moment of your educational no. or health related experience, but the AI can. Yes. And, and I think that's exactly the argument that we make. We're not trying to replace humans because I don't think we can, but the humans can't be there for the kids 24 seven, whereas the AI can. And yeah. so it's a really nice supplement. It's a strong um, argument. It, um, it paves the way for, for a metaverse that is supportive and beneficial in multiple meaningful contexts of life, but get ready for that moral panic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no matter how hard you make that argument, people are going to freak out. Um, and yes. they, I mean, that's, that's expected. That comes with every new medium, but I, I like the argument and I'm going to, I'm going to lodge it up here. Listeners, viewers, Remember, we, we can have relationships with AI or other avatars in the metaverse, but it's a different category of relationship, just as 
parents, friends, colleagues, heroes <laughs> of mine who come on my <laughs> podcast who I've known a long time and admire greatly. Um, they they're all in different categories, and I and I think it's it's okay um, to to have those relationships with AI as well. But you are all of those things I just mentioned, Grace. Uh, and so thank you. Thank you for being on the podcast, for being a friend and a colleague. And um, and I look forward to interacting with you virtually or maybe in person one of these <laughs> post-pandemic years if we yes. can get there. All right. Thank you for having me. It was great to talk to you again. Okay. That was our interview with Grace on. I hope you really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the conversation. I always enjoy talking to her. She helps me think about things in different ways. She pushes back on ideas, assumptions that I might've made. And I often imagine her as my reviewer when I'm, when I'm revising my papers for publication in academic journals. I think, oh, is this really insightful person, Grace? Um, because she doesn't take any crap. Uh, she, she, knows, uh, she knows her field very well. And and articulates her critiques very well and, and does a great job at research. So I hope you enjoyed it. And in addition to the research implications and the career implications, this episode had me thinking a bit about parenting, about the idea of virtual pets or mentors, counselors, babysitters. Netflix already is a babysitter for my kids. Often I sit my three-year-olds in front of number blocks and they'll watch it for hours. Number blocks, plug, not a sponsor here, uh, but I really like that show. If you have kids between the ages of two and five, number blocks is great for teaching number theory. Five might be a little old, um, but my three-year-olds, you say one plus two plus three plus four plus five, and they say 15 within seconds. They just memorize it. And they, but it's not that they just memorize facts. I think they're seeing, I'm going on a tangent here, <laughs> uh, but not really. This show is so well designed because it does a great job of expressing number theory to my kids. It's somewhat interactive. You know, sometimes they'll, they'll speak up, they'll sing along, but imagine if it actually was a virtual agent, a pet, a virtual dog, teaching them math, teaching them math theory, a pedagogical agent, as we might call it, um, designed to really be there with them, I think that would be great. I don't think it should or even could replace human parenting. There are certain necessities, as Grace and I discussed. So let's stop with the moral panic, leave that at the door. Television is not an appropriate 24-hour babysitter. Neither will Siri or pedagogical agent Smith be. But it will be useful. It will be useful. And perhaps it will be better than sending them to the daycare down the street that's really just existing to change diapers and, and occupy the kids all day long instead of educate and enrich them. Those are my two cents right there. Um, and so thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe. Just subscribe. I'm not going to give you my full list of like telling your mom and downloading and you don't need to do that. Well, tell your mom anyway, because she might like this, especially if she's into the metaverse. Even better, tell someone 
who you think is into the metaverse, your neighbor, your friend, I'm going on a tangent. I, what I meant to say was subscribe, please. If you've listened to more than one episode, subscribe so that our sub- subscriber numbers go up. So we know that people are actually listening. There is a non-zero chance that we stop making episodes if nobody listens. <laughs> so I can tell you we are above nobody listening, um, but not high enough to to make me feel comfortable in the longevity of this show. So dig in, friends. Click that subscribe button. Our producers are George McNeil and Taylor Halterman. Thank you so much to them. And thank you so much to you for listening. Tune in next time where we will be discussing Ready Player One with another awesome scholar, Dr. Ed Downs, who knows the show well and... Not the show, sorry, the film. And it's going to be a fun ride. We're going to connect Ready Player One to Ready Player Me. I might even read Ready Player Two by then if I can get through it. So looking forward to you looking forward to that episode. Thank you for tuning into SpartyCast. Goodbye, world.